name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. In 1914, the same year the Titanic sunk, Congress convened to discuss another nautical tragedy. In January of that year, the steamship Monroe was rammed by a merchant vessel, the Nantucket, eventually causing the Monroe to sink. Forty-one sailors lost their lives in the frigid waters off the coast of Virginia. Naturally, they arraigned the captain of the Nantucket, who rammed the Monroe, but in the lengthy process of hearing what happened, they came to realize that it really was not entirely his fault. The captain of the Monroe, Captain Johnson, was grilled for hours on the stand, and it came to be discovered that his compass deviated by two degrees from the magnetic pole. Now, he said that that was normative, and um, quite frankly, that that was the, the standard by which all good sailors used, and that was the method and the compass they used, and, and went on to defend his instruments. But in the cross-examination, perhaps he'd forgotten, they came to realize that he had not recalibrated his compass for a full year after taking the helm as captain of that ship. Thus... Um, in the fog off the coast of Virginia, while, yes, the Nantucket rammed his boat, it was the misorientation of his compass that led to that tragedy. And thus, um, the picture that was on the headlines of the papers in those days was of these two weathered sailors embracing each other in a hug and tears. They realized this tragedy came as a result of that compass and not necessarily of any action behalf on their part. In many ways, that's a fitting image for us to dwell on. Um, as Christians, as followers of Jesus, we are called to always remain rightly oriented. And we need to review that and think about that and, and take that in as to what that means time and time again. And so this morning, in that rather lengthy reading we had from 2 Kings, I'd like for us to revisit that passage because I believe we find three lessons towards that end. Um, as we go through it. If you have your Bible, um, I'd actually like for you to look at verse 1. Um, if you don't, I'll kind of explain uh, where we are. It's always helpful before we just dive into a text to remain rightly oriented and where we are in context in history. Um, so just briefly, most of the book of First and Second Kings, which outlines the kings of both Israel and uh, Judah, both will begin, more often than not, with a lead-in line as every new king is introduced. Typically, uh, it went the same. They'd introduce the king's name, the number of years he reigned, um, and where he reigned, either in Jerusalem to the south or Israel to the north, the mother's name, which kind of housed the tribe from which he comes. And then sadly, more often than not, this was the line that followed. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, as his father, insert the name of the prior king, had done. He walked in all the ways his father walked, and he served the idols his father served, and he worshipped them. That's almost the normative statement down through First and Second Kings. But really here at the very end of Second Kings, we get this wonderful reprieve with Josiah. Josiah was eight years old when he began to reign. 
and he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jedidiah, the daughter of Adiah of Bozkoth, and he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and walked in all the way of David, his father. And there's a line that we don't often get, and he did not turn aside to the right or to the left, something that couldn't even be said of his father David or Solomon in totality. As you know, their hearts wavered late in their reign. And so Josiah begins his reign by um, both spiritually and physically setting things right as he uh, repairs the temple, which had been in disrepair for arguably generations because of so many who had neglected the temple as just a physical sign of the spiritual neglect of the people in their waywardness to God. And so Josiah begins by putting things back together. And as he does so, this is where we pick up in verse 8 as a discovery is made. Um, Hilkiah the high priest said to Shaphan the secretary, I found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. Essentially, that's our Deuteronomy. Um, and as they find it, Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan, and he read it. And then Shaphan goes to the king as we read and reports all the updates that are going on. And in verse 10, Shaphan the secretary told the king, Hilkiah the priest has given me a book. And Shaphan read it before the king. Now, anytime scripture repeats something more than once, it usually should cause us to ask why. Um, and it's interesting that in these three verses, something so simple as and it was read, is repeated. Now, I think that's significant, because in many ways, um, as they're putting the, the temple back together, it could have just been said, well, we found the book of the law, and we put it on the rightful stand, and there it will remain until you come in as the high priest and conduct worship, and the people will hear it read. Or it could have just been reported to the king, we found this book of the law, um, and you can go take a look if you want. Um, or we set it here. But it's intentionally written twice in those three short verses that they found the book of the law and they read it. I think that's, that's poignant. It seems rather obvious, but I think as we think about the ways that we're called to remain rightly oriented, a first stop for us um, is that we're called, whoops, to read. We're called to read. Read scripture. And you should hopefully go, well, Padre, that's rather obvious. Um, that's what the church is called to do, and you'd be right. But I'd contend that the church, not just St. Barnabas, not just a denomination, but collectively, and more specifically in the West, doesn't truly read Scripture. In fact, statistics uh, as late as last year have shown that self-professing Christians don't even hold to core tenets of the Christian faith, like the virgin birth, or um, that Jesus was truly divine. That tells us that in an age when the Bible is more accessible than it has ever been in history, it doesn't mean that it's not being read. There's an app for that. There's ways to get through the Bible in a year. There's Lectio 365. Our prayer book has a Bible reading plan in the back of it. There's, there's numerous ways we can go about it. And I'd argue that many people do read through it. But do we truly read it, mark it, and inwardly digest it as that prayer that we often pray in December as part of Advent and preparation for Christmas calls us to do. I'd say if we did that, we'd probably have some different statistics. And one Christian author put it this way, which is really, I think, helpful to think about. Find my quote here. There's a difference between knowing the biblical stories and finding ourselves in the story in a way that helps us make sense of our lives and know God's guidance for our next steps. There's a difference between knowing, knowing the ark, 
David and Goliath, and seeing ourselves in those stories that guides and directs our lives. That's a different thing from knowing and being able to see what that says. That's to truly read is to do that. In fact, if we truly read God's word, I would contend, slowing down to do that, it will always lead to what we discover if we turn back to verse 11 here. If we turn there together, right off the bat, after it's read, the king heard the words of the book of the law and he tore his clothes. The sign of repentance, the sign of contrition, uh, as we'll read from the prophet in a few short weeks to begin Lent, it was a call to rend their hearts and not just their garments, that it should cause a response within them, not just a, a physical sort of reaction on the outside. And so the king commands Hilkiah, Ahiakim, and, and all the other wonderful folks that Chuck so graciously read to go and inquire from someone what this means, because he's discerned and heard that obviously God's wrath is kindled against them. And before we turn to the going, I think it's worth noting that if we <clears throat> truly read God's word, it should always lead to a response. It should always lead to a response on our behalf. In fact, I'd contend that if we read God's word and it doesn't prompt a response, we might need to go back and read it again. Um, scripture always convicts. It always converts. It always conforms us to God's will. That's why we have it. And maybe it doesn't mean that we immediately can go and apply what we read therein, but maybe the response is just to ask for the grace to get to that place. Just ask for the grace to be able to forgive as Jesus shows, or to love in the way that the Father does in the prodigal son, or whatever, whatever illustration that we're in. And it doesn't have to just be the words of Jesus. You can get those applications in, in the poetic works of the Psalms and Proverbs. It's the whole corpus. Jesus says he fulfills all those things, as we've heard, but not one piece of it is any less significant. And we need that response because, um, going back to our opening nautical image, if two degrees of magnetic pull can lead to a catastrophic failure in, in, in terms that we can understand, um, if we think about that morally, um, the, the same could be said. We need to constantly have these responses that recalibrate our heart towards the Lord time and time again, not just one time a year, one time a month, or even one time a week. I'd, I'd argue you need that daily. I need it daily. We all do. Because the magnetic pole, the magnetic pole, if we could stretch that image, um, of the world and our own desires and the fallen and broken world in which we live is so strong um, that we need to always be recalibrated back towards what God's will and desire is to form us as he is in Christ Jesus. And so we need that. We need those responses. But I'd also contend that it's not something we can do alone. We can't just read and respond with just me, Jesus, and my Bible. In fact, Scripture seems to point to that time and time again otherwise. In fact, I would uh, contend that uh, we see that here at the end of our reading. When they go and inquire, beginning in verse 14, and want to seek out, as the priest is commanded, they go find Huldah the prophetess. It's a rather interesting figure. We only encounter her, her here. It makes no sense, and we don't really know why they didn't go at that time to Zephaniah or even Jeremiah, who are contemporary prophets that we know quite well at this season. 
Lots of ink, I can assure you, has been spilled as to why that might be. But what we know is this. The Lord honors the king's desire to go and understand, and does so even through Huldah. And in so doing, we see that prophetic lead-in, thus says the Lord, in verse 15, which is something we see with every prophetic lead-in. And then the check is what follows. Thus says the Lord, and it just reiterates exactly what they've read and heard. God's not going to reveal something other than what he's already revealed. Um, he's given us direction and clarity in that end. But towards the end here, in verse 19, we read the response that he gives for the king is that because his heart was penitent, because he humbled himself before the Lord, um, he's going to stay his hand. So in this community gathering, if you will, of those gathered to discern and understand what this means with Huldah, we see certain things. God reiterates what he's already reiterated, and he also there, through Huldah, reaffirms his own character. So God's justice um, can't be negated. Um, it demands a response. It always will. When God promises something, he doesn't say, well, I'll do a do-over. Um, he's going to be true to it. So we see that his character and his justice is there, but equal to that is his mercy that we see manifest there as well. He doesn't say when the timing will be. He just says these things will come to pass. And because of the penitence of Josiah on behalf of the people, he stays his hand until Josiah passes. And that tragedy of what will become known as the exile, the latter half of Jeremiah and Isaiah and all these fulfillments comes after that time. So what does this have to say for us? I would, I would say that um, we can't truly uh, understand Scripture apart from reading it and responding it in community. We have to reach out to one another. That's the purpose of the church, I'd contend. The church can do lots of things. Um, we gather together for worship, and that is central, but if all we do is just gather for worship and then leave these doors, we've missed the point of the church, which is to be conformed through worship and in community together into the very likeness of the one that we worship weekly. And so we've got to reach out toward one another to grow toward that end. And that's really the purpose of the church, is it not? The church can do lots of things, but so can lots of other organizations. There's plenty of organizations that can help the sick and the needy. There's plenty of places where we can go and find fellowship. There's plenty of groups that have organizational tasks and goals and agendas. The difference is the church has one very different and distinct purpose. And uh, one, one Christian author put it this way, which I think is quite helpful. The church, unlike any other organization, is not a team that gathers around a mission statement, a purpose, or a task. It's a community that gathers around a person, the person of Jesus, and there is conformed as he is and is guided by him. That's key. Um, when we gather around Jesus, that's what we're doing. And yes, the manifestation of corporal acts of mercy and all of those things should and will follow, but those aren't the goal. The goal is to be as Jesus is. When our hearts are more converted and conformed to him, all those things will bubble up. Jesus says as much. And so what do we do of this? I would kind of give you a final charge, which is this. If, if you don't have a church home, find one. You need to be rooted somewhere. You need community somewhere. You need to find a place to be grounded in community with those who gather around word and sacrament toward that end. 
And if you do call this your home, and you are involved in such Bible studies, can I just spur you on? I know it's February. I know the spring is long. I know the weeks kind of blur together, and it's easy to get fatigued and kind of drop out for a week or two here or there, but, but stick with it. It's worth it. There's nothing of more value. And the, the format we use here is wonderful because you're not getting a Bible study guide that some wonderful and brilliant mind has written questions to that you respond to, but you're going to open God's Word and ask a few simple questions that ask you to place yourself in that text and then ask yourself, what will we do because of what we've read? And if this is your church home and you're not involved in one of those Bible studies, let me urge you to do that. It's, it's worth your time. I recognize not everyone can do Sunday mornings, and not all of you live in Hazlitt. Um, they're wonderful up that way. Um, but we'll find other times. Uh, if you email me and say, hey, Tuesdays are good for me, let's make it happen. Um, there, there's no greater thing we need to be doing, because we need to read it together, respond together, and then hold one another accountable towards that end. The Lord will speak through you, the Holy Spirit that speaks through the prophet Huldah, lives in you by virtue of your baptism, and as you gather towards the end of bringing yourself under his presence in the pages of scripture, he'll reveal things to you, and reveal things to you through others, and that's where those things happen, and that's where we get further conformed in the likeness of Jesus, and again, that's part of the hallmark of the church. Let me leave you with one last nautical image. We're not there yet, but by God's grace, before I'm gone, maybe we will be. When we build a sanctuary, um, the up in the sanctuaries, if you look up in any historic church of any tradition that, that's kind of on that historic build, um, and you look up and you're just kind of looking around at the architecture, you'll notice that almost every historic church has a wood ceiling that's usually vaulted, and there's something that resembles a beam in some way down the middle. And if you use your imagination, it looks like the hull of a ship turned upside down. And that's intentional. There's intentionality in church architecture. Um, it's beautiful. Um, and, and in that comes this image that we get every time someone is presented for baptism. The prayer that precedes the, the journey to the font or, or the trough or whatever we use um, is, is essentially this, that the church is the ark by which we go through the tumults and trials of this life, buffeted as we are, toward our heavenly home. That's the image of the church that we are all hands on deck all the time to help each other out so that we reach the other side. And not just we, but by God's grace, we pull everyone we can out of the water on the way so that others can come to find the same. That's something we've got to hold in remembrance, persevere in, and commit to in the days and weeks and months to come so that Jesus Christ might be formed further in us and that we might be, as we heard Jesus say, a light to the world that desperately needs it these days. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.